Hello, I'm Mark McCurgo and welcome to the Village in the City podcast, helping you build micro-local community where you live. Welcome to Podcast 9 from Village in the City. This time we're welcoming Delia Swart and her colleagues from Protection Approaches, a London-based charity who use community building as a way of working against identity-based violence all over the world. It's a really fascinating call with lots of great stuff about inclusivity. Let's get right on with the session. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our ninth Village in the City call. And I'm very, very excited today to welcome uh, Delia Swart and and, uh, Andy Fern and some of their colleagues from Protection Approaches in London uh, who combat identity-based violence using community building. And I think this is a really interesting topic. I went on an excellent training with their group uh, in December, which was highly recommended. If you ever get the chance to to join them, do take it. So identity-based violence isn't, I think, perhaps the top of many people's agendas who are starting to think about building a village in the city, building a micro-local community where they are. But we have a manifesto, and uh, which you can see on our website, villageinthecity.net forward slash manifesto. And uh, we have six key elements of a village in the city, and inclusivity is element number one. And it's easy to think about building a community that's exclusive. It's for me and my friends. It's not for anybody else. And you you can do that if you'd like, but that's not what we're about. We are about uh, building communities which have maybe a narrow geographical focus, but within that have a very inclusionary uh, move and desire uh, to really reach out to everybody who lives there, no matter uh, which you know, end of the community and, and, and what their different preferences and lifestyles and whatever might be. This idea of inclusivity is one we're going to be building on uh, as, as we go along through the weeks and months ahead. Uh, and it's really exciting to have some uh, world-class experts with us today to share some of their stuff on uh, how community can help to include in a really radical sense. Delia and Andy, over to you, please. Hi, everyone. Really wonderful to meet you. Uh, So I'm Delia from Protection Approaches, the Senior Education Officer. Uh, You'll see a couple of my colleagues are with us today as well, and I'll give them a chance to introduce themselves in a second. Uh, But I just wanted to give a short overview of what we've got covered today, just so that you'll see how our framework of identity-based violence links very much with building strong, inclusive communities which is at the heart of the work of Village uh, in the City as well. Um, So we'll be talking a little bit about that framework of identity-based violence, the context that we're in right now, really focusing on the UK because a lot of our work, our domestic work is focused there Uh, and giving you a little bit of a taster from this community building workshop that we've been running and piloting for the last couple of months. So we've got an activity in store for you. So we won't just be talking and lecturing at you. You'll get a chance to feed in a little bit as well. to think a little bit more deeply around those those principles of community building and what what works in making communities resilient and strong. Uh, So that's just a little overview of what's to come. Um, I'd love for my colleagues to say hi to you. Uh, Andy, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Uh, Lovely to be here. Uh, I'm Andy. I work with Delia Protection Approaches. Um, I'm one of the uh, co-directors and I'm based in lovely, currently nearly sunny Limehouse in London. And Shimon? Hi, everyone. So good to be here today. My name is Shimon. I've been working for protection approaches for approximately two years, uh, as Delia and Andy. Um, currently in Poland, there's no sun, unfortunately. 
And uh, Detmer, we have here as well. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Detmer. I'm the Policy and Communications Officer uh, for about six months now at Protection Approaches, and I'm calling from London right next to Victoria Park. So we thought the best way to explain to you a little bit more about our work preventing identity-based violence would be to show you first a really quick video that kind of gives a, an overview of the work that we do and how we approach it, and then we'll go into it into a little bit more depth. It can happen anywhere, from physical assaults in our own neighborhoods to terrorist attacks against societies like those in Britain, Norway, or Iraq, to atrocities against whole groups like Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar. If we look closer at these seemingly unconnected and unrelated events, there's a common starting point. Whether it's because of where someone comes from, what they believe, or what they look like. Those who commit these crimes believe their victims deserve attack because of their identity. When particular groups are blamed for our problems, or we start to believe a certain group threatens our way of life, it is easy for harms against that group to be seen as acceptable. These are everyday behaviors that we all need to understand, and crucially, that we can all affect within our neighborhoods, governments, and as a global community. And that's our goal, to build awareness and understanding of the common causes of identity-based violence and how we can work together to end it. Creating a world free from identity-based violence. So identity-based violence, that's the word you'll hear us use a lot. And here's just a definition of it on the slide. It's any act of violence motivated by the perpetrator's conceptualization of their victim's identity. So for example, their race, gender, sexuality, religion, or political affiliation. It encompasses hate crime, violent extremism, and genocide and affects both individuals as well as entire groups or communities all around the world. So I think what makes this term a little bit unique is that it allows us to work across different sectors that sometimes work in silos. And we look at these different issues from hate crime to genocide as part of a shared challenge, a shared global challenge. Um, so we think that understanding the root causes of these different, uh, different kinds of crimes can help us better understand and prevent uh, these crimes in communities all around the world. And in essence, what we try to do through our work is to create a world where everyone accepts and respects one another, regardless of their identity. So no matter where it takes place and no matter whom it targets, every act of identity-based violence is a manifestation of the deadly idea that some lives are more valuable than others. And we work in different ways to confront that idea with communities, schools, and policymakers. So a lot of the work I do is with schools, uh, building strong, resilient, inclusive school communities where these kinds of attacks can be prevented from a very young age. But a lot of the work I do as well is with communities. And the reason that we're, there, we're here today to talk about strong, resilient, and safe communities is that we think one of the strongest and best ways to prevent any form of, of identity-based violence is by building really, really strong communities. And we believe that community led approaches are the best way to bring people together in meaningful ways and break down different divides. So building strong communities is really at the heart of work that we do uh, in the UK, but it's also at the heart of the work that we advocate for around the world. And we believe that this work has become very important in recent times. I'm going to hand over to Andy to talk a little bit about the context that we've been in before COVID and during COVID as well. 
Thanks, Delia. Uh, yeah, we're talking about our community building programme today. And Delia's exactly right. Um, the, you know, I mean, my background is in, in genocide prevention and worked in various places in the world on, on preventing genocide. Um, but of course, you know, like hate crime or violent extremism, like genocide doesn't just happen overnight. It, it happens because of, of years of, of sort of community uh, disintegration and, and uh, group being marginalised to the point where they're seen as so different that violence against them is acceptable. And actually, one of the best ways of, of stopping genocide from happening years before it does, or hate crime in our communities, or people uh, being the victims of discrimination or prejudices, is to have really strong communities where people know people different to them, where, where um, different identities are respected, where we can have um, productive conflict rather than uh, rather than um, conflict which leads to violence. Um, and so we've been assessing as an organisation, the UK, over the last few years. Um, it's something that we do. We do our work like we think we, we need to do this work in the UK um, and support UK government and others to do the, like, the work that prevents identity-based violence around the world. This is needed everywhere all the time. Uh, and so we've looked at the UK and this is just um, an example to you of uh, a survey we did um, last year. No, it's end of 2019, actually, now, um, where we asked, we asked lots and lots of questions that would indicate to us the strength of, of um, our communities, the risk factors against certain groups in our communities. And you can see here some really awfully shocking figures, really. Um, you know, Gypsy Roma traveller communities. Uh, 40, more than 40%, 41% of people saying they see those communities as a threat to brilliant success and prosperity, uh, a group that makes up a tiny fraction of our, of our society being seen by 40% as a threat um, to brilliant success and prosperity. Again, really difficult to look at um, figures about Muslims, about immigrants and, and Jewish people as well. People said to us before, well, at least that's positive, you know, it's only 5.6%. Uh, uh, say that about Jewish people. That still works out as something like three million adults in the UK see Jewish people as a threat to bring success and prosperity. So, I mean, just think what that means for the other numbers. Anyway, I promised you I wouldn't talk too much during this bit, so I'll move on. But basically, our assessment led us to believe um, that, uh, and it says it here, like we judged when we re released these figures, that the risk factors were worsening at a time when the country was approaching a unique period of political uncertainty and social anxiety. When we wrote those words, we thought we were talking about Brexit. We thought we were talking about uh, our exit from the European Union, possibly uh, no deal Brexit. We were all talking about it. So it was top of every news headline at the time. And, and we saw that being as a, a real um, concern. Uh, little did we know uh, that the true period of political uncertainty and social anxiety would, of course, be COVID and, and what that's brought to all of our communities. And, and we did see um, when, when COVID, uh, when there was an outbreak, we, we saw uh, spikes in uh, hate crime um, against particularly East and Southeast Asian community groups, people who perpetrators saw as Chinese. Uh, we saw a rise in hate speech, as you can see here from this new statement article against Chinese people and, and Jewish people. Uh, in, in June, uh, we saw... Um, uh, the highest level of hate crime in London ever seen over a single month. Um, and that was higher than the previous highest 
month by 40%, and the previous highest month was in June 2017, a month which saw a number of terrorist attacks, um, and so a big spike in, in, in hate crimes taking place. So there was this uptick in, in marginalised uh, groups um, facing uh, discrimination, hate, hate speech, and hate crime. Um, but also at the same time, we saw this huge uptick in in volunteering, right? In in people doing things. We saw four thousand two hundred and fifty mutual aid groups set up across the UK by May twenty twenty. Uh, so just a couple of months into the the pandemic, thousands of groups of people organising to do, to support the vulnerable people in their communities. Um, we know from this Talk Together report that came out just a, a week or so ago. Uh, that 4.6 million people volunteered for this first time. Um, and then, of course, you know, this this very group that we're, we're working with, I think, sprung up uh, around that that time um, because of a want, a desire to do things um, in to bring our local communities together. So at the same time, there's like these great risk factors we can see, um, as well as uh, these these fantastic uh, mobilization um, and really. You know what this community building is about is in that knowledge that the strong resilient inclusive communities where people know each other where people get along where people are able to speak about difficult topics together um where where those who are marginalized have a voice etc etc knowing that those communities are the the way we prevent identity-based violence what this community building is all about and i'll pass on to Delia before saying much more um is about uh, how we make sure that these volunteers, these people, the, the, the ones, the experts in and of their community can share expertise amongst themselves, but also are made aware of expertise from around the world because there's been a community building sector around the world of peace building or cohesion building or um, um, you know, conflict prevention, doing this kind of work for decades. And so there's so much that can be learned from best practice from elsewhere. Delia. Thank you, Andy. Um, so Andy set up really nicely the kind of context for this community builder training that we launched uh, late last year. So when we talk about community building, it's a kind of loose term that we use to describe a range of different activities, initiatives and projects and programs that are all aimed towards building inclusive, kind, connected and safe communities. So kind of a, a, a broad term because we believe that it's really the people that are based in their communities that, that know their communities best and are best placed to, to lead those efforts to building kind communities. And there's lots of different ways of doing that. But what we found is that a lot of people that want to get started in community building aren't always aware of the best practice that already exists around the world um, and could really benefit from, from learning from that best practice, but could also really benefit from being in a space through which they could build a really strong network of people. So the idea behind this community builder training was to, um, to pilot a, a training program that would bring global best practice to local communities from different fields, from, from peace building, community organizing, conflict prevention, and really create a network of community builders. Um, you'll see here that the training was first very much focused on London. Uh, that was kind of the, the parameters of the, the grant, um, but it ended up being a really nice way to kind of really focus in on a, on a particular city and bring people together um, to find different tools and tactics and ways of working together to build strong communities. What we wanted to do is to share a little bit of how we share best practice in that training. Uh, before we, we started the training, we did a consultation process. We spoke with community builders, peace builders, community organizers from around the world. So people working in London, but also people working in, in very di different places. And we asked them questions around what they think are the most important 
parts of building those strong, cohesive communities, what works, what the principles are, uh, what they believe really works best to bring that best practice into the training. Uh, and so we created a, a little video for the participants to share during the training to capture some of the best practice and to spark some conversations. And I realized that I forgot Shimon's part. <laughs> Shimon's gonna share it before we see the video. I promise you, <laughs> Shimon, that it would be really interesting to share a little bit with you guys as well. Some of the people who came to this training, I mentioned that it was people from London, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't a lot of diversity within the group. And actually the 300 community builders that we've trained have come from really different walks of life and really different parts of London. So we wanted to give you a snapshot of that as well. So I'll hand over to Shimon to tell a bit more. Um, thank you very much, Delia. And as Delia was mentioning, um, the people who joined the training, the group was really diverse. And initially, when we started the training, I was a little bit afraid. Who is going to come to the training? Who am I going to speak to? When actually, I was so surprised, first of all, about the amount of people who joined the training, but then about the diversity. So we had people from different parts of the city. We had people from East. We had people from the, from the West, from North, from the South. We had people who were volunteers. We had people who were working in local governments, retired people, students, people who do not work, people from different backgrounds, people speaking different languages, different levels of, of, of English, people from different countries. And I do believe that the community building training brought people together who maybe in other circumstances wouldn't have the opportunity to talk together. And we certainly created the opportunity because our trainings are structured in that way. That's not us just talking for six hours. That would be really boring. <laughs> So what are we trying to do? There's a lot of activities in the breakout rooms and we make sure that every single time people go into the breakout rooms, they have an opportunity to meet someone else. And that was really amazing and beautiful because people get to know each other. And <clears throat> uh, we run some focus groups after the trainings and we know some people stayed in touch and they are doing some really, really cool stuff. Sometimes we had people from the same boroughs and they were doing this the same or similar things and they connected or people across boroughs, people from different boroughs and they were doing similar things and they decided to, to stay in touch and try to do something together. So definitely a lot of people from different, different parts of lives. Back to you, Delia. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight, if you know London, you'll see that there's lots of different boroughs represented from London, from Newham to Barnet to Tower Hamlets and uh, Westminster. So really people from all over the city came, people working in arts and food banks, really in different, different places. I think I saw someone ask in the chat how we advertised this training. Uh, it's a really good question. Uh, we really wanted to make people aware who are working in different community and voluntary sectors about the training as it was happening. Uh, so we had a big outreach um, program, which Shimon can also add a little bit more about. We did a huge outreach to different charities, to local councils, to residents associations, uh, mutual aid groups, um, really trying to figure out where people might be either getting their information from or might be getting connected. Uh, ideally, we would have done all of this in person and we would have been able to do a, a much more in-depth outreach in person as well. But because of COVID, uh, it all happened online. Shimon, do you wanna add anything about any of the outreach? Well, the only thing I wanted to add, so obviously there's a lot of research involved, but we know that some people, the most vulnerable people who would benefit from the training, probably they do not have email address, they do not have internet uh, uh, access to internet. So we are outreaching people in different ways. It was also phone calls. Uh, I was outreaching the Roma Gypsy community. I've done quite a lot of work with uh, just to make sure we outreach as many people as possible from many different backgrounds. 
Yeah, and you'll see here as well that we we reach people who work are a part of asylum seeker communities who work with older people and disabled people. So part of our outreach was really trying to think about um, people who are working in community based organizations, whether it's at the local level or the um, more governmental level, but also really thinking about who are people who might be targeted because of hate crime and should really be part of, of this training as well. Um, so that's a bit about who took part. Now, the video is next, I promise. <laughs> There are so many people in the world who really long to, to make a difference and they want to do good in the society. And of course, when you want to do good, normally we are wired to go to the place of comfort. And, and we are wired also to go to the place of familiarity and we, we fear vulnerability. And so, so you find that when we, we want to bring communities together and even to find ways of even contributing to charity or even bringing out issues that we feel have not been spoken about effectively in the society, we tend to end up preaching to the converted. My name is Jenny Makaniani, and I've worked in community development and community cohesion for nine years in Belfast, in London, and in South Africa, in the volunteering community sector with government and with uh, the United Nations. The key is it's community-led, making sure that any interventions that you do with the community are done with the community in a really meaningful way. And that's all that's in the design, that's in the implementation, that's in the monitoring and in the delivery of the project as a whole. It's much harder to do a meaningful um, community development project when you bring in all of the different actors of the community it's more complex because you have to go out of your way to make sure that those people who aren't often heard in those communities have a space within your project. It is harder to do it, but it is definitely, definitely makes it more effective in the, in the long run. The more, you know, it's not rocket science, the more people within the community that you get buy-in for what you're trying to do, the more successful your outcomes will be. There's a lot of things that come under the title of community organizing. For me and my life, community organizing has meant building organizations based in the community that create uh, for themselves enough power to be able to act on those things that they want to change or they want to stop. The most important thing is, you know, is to meet people face to face. That's a little harder now with COVID, but you can try to do it with Zoom. All of these organizations that we've built um, and others that I've seen that work have as a universal principle doing, uh, I call it individual relational meetings, face-to-face, -face, 30 to 45 minutes where you're not trying to sell anybody on anything. You're trying to understand a little bit about who they are. You share a little bit about who you are. And then you, the person starts to share some of their interests and concerns. And it's not for you to say, you know, that's not the problem. This is the problem. Well, it's not, you ask the person, it's not on you. And it doesn't start with an issue. Uh, and it doesn't start with uh, my idea as to what is needed here. 
uh, I've organized in many places at different times uh, what people thought was the most important thing when I was in the community. I didn't think that was the most important thing, but it wasn't for me to say I agree or I don't agree. It was for me to help them figure out how to get done what they thought was most important. In my experience uh, in working with communities uh, has been uh, a journey of 20 years and it's been varied. It's all about inclusion. Where people have felt that they are listened to and that they are really meaningfully included and that their voice matters, we have always seen better, better scenarios, better relationships and sustainable um, peaceableness in the community, you know? So you, you find that um, people feel all right, we can actually do this together and we don't need an outsider to come in and help us. In every context, whether it is overt conflict, where there's um, violence being experienced, whether it is latent, all these scenarios, when the people who are affected acknowledge and are able to analyze and discern the problem, they can come up with homegrown solutions. And often, more often than not, if it is led by one of their own, they always tend to find meaningful and long-lasting ways of appreciating the solutions rather than imported solutions from outside. A quick reminder that you're listening to the Village in the City podcast, helping you build micro-local communities where you live. You can find lots of resources, connections, ideas and ways to contact other village builders on our website, villageinthecity.net, villageinthecity.net. Well, we had some discussions in the group and created a word cloud of words that we connect with community and we rejoined Dilia talking about that word cloud as she sees it. So this is our word cloud of the community building principles that you guys brainstormed in your groups. Um, and let's see what we've come up with. So we get ownership, accepting, inclusive, safe spaces, shared leadership, co-participation, acknowledging people, active listening, uh, start where people are at, everyone can contribute. So a lot of these words in here are really about um, creating a space. So a safe space, making space, lots of accessible spaces. I see a lot of words around space uh, and being really intentional around that space, how we, how we create it, very active around making that space, opening that space, um, which I think is really important. Communities can be spaces um, and the way that we bring people into those spaces is, is really important. There's lots of great words here as well around leadership, um, from shared leadership to respectful leadership, um, which I think is, is really important. Like, I think leadership can be shared in the way that we think about how we engage with people in that space can absolutely be, be shared uh, and respectful. Um, I see lots of words here that remind me of an assets-based approach. So really thinking about everyone having gifts and everyone being able to contribute uh, to, to the space, speaking to everyone, uh, active listening, so lots of different skills and ways of working together that make sure that um, 
I see open listening as well. I like these different words around listening that were, uh, and that's really actually at the heart of the principles we'll share with you in a minute. Um, this idea that we really need to listen deeply. And I think listening is a bit of a lost art sometimes in some spaces I've been in because people listen, but only listen to hear the things that they want to and don't necessarily listen in an open way, an active way um, that kind of recognizes that people come from different places. I like that there's also one in here about questions. So listening and questions, it creates this, this sense of dialogue that we're speaking with one another in a really, um, in a really creative and, and, uh, and positive way. I like that the word greeting is in here too. So there's this idea that when we come into this space, how do we make it feel safe? How do we make it feel shared through greetings? Greetings is a great way to acknowledge different people. I also see that lots of you talked about starting where people are at, um, kind of openness to ideas. So really starting from a humble place that we're gonna figure this out together and not coming in with solutions, but co-creating a space together. There's lots of really fantastic words in here around relationships. I can go on and on, but I can see from, from these word cloud, from this word cloud that you guys had very rich, uh, that you all had um, a very rich conversation um, with one another in the different breakout rooms. And we'd love to hear a bit more about it later, but I think we might want to share our principles now and then open space um, to share at the end because I'm mindful of time. But thank you all for sharing your, um, your different principles from your breakout rooms, I think. I can see that the conversations have been very, very fruitful. So I'll just share my screen one last time and then we'll, we'll stop talking at you. Um, we wanted to share with you our community building principles, the kinds of things that we think are really important when, when doing this work. And again, it's really about the how we do it, not just the what, um, because it's, it's so important in the approaches that we take every day in every space that we think about a lot of different different things uh, to make sure that the way in which we work with with ourselves, with our teammates, and with the communities in which we're we're located or in which we're working, um, that we're thinking about people oriented, uh, connected, and self sustaining ways of of working together. So we'll, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are the some some of the principles that we use in our in our daily work. Um, so I'll hand over to Shimon to talk about a couple of these first. Thank you very much, Delia. And I'm going to start from self-awareness. And there's a reason I believe why self-awareness comes first. Because I do believe before you start to work with any community, before you start any kind of project initiative, you have to know who you are. You have to understand what are your strengths because you can build on them, but also knowing your weaknesses, something you can work on, something you can improve. And again, before you start any kind of project, any kind of initiative, it's good to ask yourself a few questions. Who am I in that space? Am I someone from the community? Be that work community, specific ethnic community, geographic community, whatever the community is we are talking about slash working with. If we are from the community, it, it does not necessarily mean it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it does mean it changes the way we interact with the group and how we are being seen by the group. And I myself, I'm Roma Gypsy, and I've done quite a lot of work with the Roma Gypsy community. And sometimes people ask me the question like, do you find it easier or more difficult to work with the community you are part of? And to be frank, it's so difficult for me to answer. Like certainly, definitely, it's easier in some ways because there's a lot of trust involved. Like straight away, I speak the language called Romanes. So when I outreach the community and I start to speak the language, they think he's one of us. But saying that, it's also very difficult 
because there is a great pressure. There's a great demand because usually what they would say to me, well, you're part of our community. You should do that for us. And then sometimes I was comparing the work I was doing for the community and my colleagues who were not from the community and definitely the demand was not that great. Another question you may ask yourself, what is my power and influence in relation to others? Do I have what it takes to support others to be leaders rather than yourself? And this is so important because I've seen so many projects fail because one person was doing absolutely everything and other people were relying on that person. And then life is happening. The person might be gone. We do not know the reason. And then the whole project collapsed and people do not have all the necessary skills to carry on the project. So self-awareness is really important. It's everything about understanding your own power and all the dynamics. Another one, one of my favorite, awareness of local context. And we, are we were talking about this a little bit in our breakout room. And I know when activities are imposed from the outside without a deep, meaningful understanding of the local context, they often fail or worse, they even have harmful consequences. We need to understand what the community wants, what the community needs. There has to be a meaningful consultation. There has to be deep listening, active listening, open listening, the actual desire to hear from people what they want and need, not coming with preconceived ideas and saying to the communities, well, this is your issue and this is how we are going to fix it. It's not going to work. And when it comes to consultation, I witnessed many consultations, not just with the Roma Gypsy community, but with a lot of Eastern European communities. And what I've seen, there is no dialogue. There is always us and them. There is no meaningful interaction. And there are many issues around that. So very often during the consultation, people were talking in a really professional jargon, using really specific terms. And the community was sitting there. We had to encourage the community to go to the meetings because there was such a low esteem. Very often people are saying, well, there isn't much I can bring to the table. So the first step was encouraging them, but then actually it was failing because they were sitting there and just nodding to everything, agreeing and saying, we do enjoy the coffee. We do enjoy the biscuits, but actually nothing is coming out of it. So we have to be able to facilitate around that. Having conversations so people can find out what they need. We can help people to make informed decisions about things. Awareness of local context goes beyond the way we consult people, of course. So there has to be understanding of the history, understanding where the local power dynamics lie, understanding who holds the power and who doesn't, understanding where there are blocks, was there any conflict? And I do believe the more we know about the community we are working with, the more we can plan in a meaningful way and interact with the community. Um, and the third one, inclusiveness. I think the mistake that a lot of people make with inclusiveness is hearing inclusiveness as everyone is welcome. Well, inclusiveness isn't saying everyone is welcome because people here, everyone is welcome in such a different way. Inclusiveness isn't also bringing people together in the same room without a meaning, meaningful interaction, without a common purpose. We need to facilitate something. And I've seen many times an event and different communities were brought, but actually they were not engaging. I've seen the Asian community sticking to the Asian community, the Roma community with the Roma community, the Eastern Europeans with the Eastern Europeans. So inclusiveness actually would be breaking down all the barriers that prevent people from being involved. Are we thinking about accessibility? Be that the language, be that the time of date, be that physical accessibility, be that confidence. And I was talking about the confidence, like to encourage people because very often they say, well, 
There isn't anything I can say during the meeting. I do not have any skill. I struggle with the language. So encourage people and tell to them, uh, if you struggle with English, I can help you a little bit. If you do not know how to fill in the form, we can help you with that. But actually you have a lot you can bring to the table. Um, are we really addressing those barriers? Are we addressing these things that prevent something from being really inclusive? Are we identifying why the event initiative or a project we are doing might not be something that some people feel they're able to engage with? Um, I'm just gonna jump in because we're really running low on time and I just want to dash through the last couple, but I think you gave did justice to, to that principle. So just really quickly, the last three, the first, the next one's around is sustainability and durability. So that's really taking a long-term vision to our work. Doesn't necessarily mean we need to start a new project or a new initiative. It's really about finding ways to work in partnership with others in a so that we can sustain work in the, in the long-term. Uh, building on existing positive initiatives, no place is a vacuum. Uh, every area has one person at least working on something already. So it's about identifying what already exists, taking an assets-based approach to any kind of work and making sure that we're building on uh, existing structures and strengths so that we amplify the positive work that already exists anywhere. Last one's accountability. That's really about uh, transparency, honesty, working in a way that we're accountable to ourselves, to those that we work with and showing and demonstrating how, how we're doing that work in an in a effective and inclusive way. Um, so that was a really quick rundown of some of our principles, but we just thought to share some of them because they link a lot to the kinds of things that you guys, that you all were talking about in, um, in the breakout rooms and shared in the word cloud. But I think we've talked long enough, so I'll stop here and maybe answer any questions or happy to speak more about the principles if that's interesting. Uh, hand back to Mark to uh, lead us forward. Well, thank you, Delia, and thank you all to all the team from Protection Approaches. That's uh, fascinating stuff. And one thing that resonated very strongly with me is that inclu inclusiveness is more than just saying everyone's welcome. I think that's a really, really good place to start with thinking about this. It's about being more active. It's about being more, more inviting. It's about thinking about what are we inviting people to do? How can we do that in a way that they can show off, you know, demonstrate their gifts, their talents, their culture, their maybe their food. Food's a good place to start with a lot of these things, I think. So, folks, we have a question opportunity. Please take the chance to ask these good people some great questions. I just want to ask something about where... Andy first, when he was talking, say something that is really interesting about productive conflict. If you could explain a bit more, what does it mean? Really, I just mean it's, you know, we, we do this exercise with people where we talk about what does your perfect community look like? Um, and often people come back and say, well, is there a perfect community? I mean, like people are allowed to, to, to disagree people are allowed to have different opinions and of course the answer is yes they are absolutely what a sad and miserable world we'd live in if everyone just agreed on everything right and everyone thought the same um, and it just feels like over the past years we've we've forgotten what a joy it is that, that there's lots of different opinions and thoughts and and we can't have that that disagreement um, or like you know conflict in many ways a conflicting uh, opinion conflicting way of viewing the world in a really positive way um, and that, that, that these things are now conducted in a, a, a way that, that results in um, polarisation and, and um, uh, further um, 
division of our, our communities or spaces. So that's all I mean really. When I, you know, I think conflict can be a good thing. It doesn't, you know, if, if we're not thinking of violent conflict, if we're thinking of conflict in terms of people who are passionate about their beliefs, you know, disagreeing really, really strongly on something, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. That can be really positive if, if we're able to do that in, in positive ways. Okay, so I have a question while everyone else is still thinking. Uh, imagine that you're you're in a position of trying to build a, a, a local micro local community, you know, in in a, in a small patch of a city, and you want to extend your reach to reach past perhaps the obvious people, who kind of the people who immediately responded when you put out the call to say who who wants to get together. What what are, what are your top tips on that? Uh, how do we go about finding the people who are around, like in the fringes and around the edges, maybe of, <coughs> of our communities, and then uh, helping them, encourage them towards towards the centre? We'll probably have some good uh, answers. Uh, having done so much of not just the outreach work for this programme, Shimon, but you've done loads of work with like you said in your thing, particularly Roma communities, often not involved or don't become involved in um, these kinds of initiatives. Um, one, if you've got thoughts on how people could reach out to Roma or other like groups that you've worked with in the past that particularly marginalised, who particularly you know find it very difficult to engage in these activities. It's a really difficult question because I, when we talk about certain communities, we tend to generalise. We say the Roma community or the LGBT community, but actually there are micro communities within the community. So the first thing I always do is try to get to know the people I'm working with. And I, do have a, and I don't have an agenda initially at all. Like I go there, if they play chess, I sit with them and I play chess. Or I enjoy drawing, I enjoy painting, and I try to incorporate that as much as possible in my work line. So what I would do, I would take out my easel and I would start to paint or draw. And then usually people are joining me and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm painting, would you like to try? I have a spare canvas. And this is how the dialogue, the conversation starts. And I've done many mistakes before, like I was coming up to a community center and I was like, well, Today, we are going to watch this movie. And they look at me, no, we are not watching this movie today. We don't like the movie. <laughs> so then actually we are going back to the deep listening. And I kind of impose a little bit uh, one activity once on one group and they didn't like it. And they came back to me because we had a good conversation. There was trust between us. And they said, hey, listen, we really want to do something around knitting. Can you do something? Can you help us out? Like obviously extremely marginalized community not having resources. So I managed to find some knitting needles and like I taught myself, actually I was taught by the older ladies how to knit. So I think the important thing is like to see the individuals within the group, listening to them and not to be pushy because they've been marginalized for such a long time. If you're going to be pushy and if they're going to see that you have an agenda and you're just sticking boxes, they're not going to work with you. Thank you, Shimon. There's some valuable stuff there. In my, I work in a solution-focused tradition, and we have a saying about, if you want to be fast, go slow. And it seems that there's a little bit of that in, in what you're saying, maybe. Richard, you had a question. It was more a comment than a question that in terms of reaching marginalised communities, sometimes there can be traditions like a, a newcomers club, which might, so there might be people who've just arrived who don't fit in yet and your newcomers club might be one thing so i think we had a speaker from cheltenham who had a newcomers club that was very popular and the, the other thing is something that cuts across communities so maybe something for old people or something for children where if you do something for children then people from different communities might have 
children so you find things that cut across different communities that or if it's you're in a tourist area maybe something that brings together tourists who are temporarily in town together with locals but i think that you need to be creative but find something that cuts across the different communities or you know make a make a feature out of some local celebration or national day or something that you can get people to come together around but you have to look at your local circumstances terry terry is saying loudly in the chat music you want to say a word about that terry yeah um just that music is is cross-generational, cross-cultural, cross-everything all, basically. Um, many years ago, I was working in a project in North London and, and it was working with, um, with refugees and asylum seekers. It was working, we wanted particularly to work with children. Um, and we were, well, it was, they were in a hostel, it was a pretty grim place, but we just took in a load of musical instruments, the musical instruments from all around the world and the kids just sat there and played and it didn't matter what language they spoke, it just, it, they all just had a really really good time because music is it, it's it's a language in itself and it's just a great way to get people to uh to it to interrogate and and to to play with each other and to talk and to communicate as well thank you terry great stuff and Delia said in the chat priya parker also does great work around healthy conflicts and how to organize gatherings with purpose and her book i think is called the art of gathering isn't it it's well well worth uh catching if you haven't if you haven't already uh, had a look at that good stuff uh, so we're coming towards the end of our hour which has been a very packed one uh, this week and uh, just like a final opportunity for, so we're gonna a final opportunity for questions then I'll close the call and anyone who wants to sit around and have a chat with me about anything to do with the village and the city project can do that but last chance for questions right now uh, okay well Oh, yes, Jenny. Yeah, it, it's a sort of a comment, really. And I, I've been hearing about the, the, the importance of identity. But I'm thinking this is following up a bit on Mark's um, question. If our only identity that we share is that we live in the same street. So um, that's, our, that's our common identity. Then I think these ideas about music, food, celebrating a local anniversary or something are probably the ways to start to 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 do the inviting thing um we would we probably wouldn't see ourselves in in the people who live in the streets nearby wouldn't know they had a common identity until they ate the food or until they played the music so i've, I've been hearing from from some of the conversations about the importance of a task or a project or a, what are we being invited to? And um, that's what I'm going to be thinking about. Thank you, everybody. Well, thank you, Jenny, and thank you, everyone. Thank you.